the end of the book of Revelation, believe it or not. This is, I think, the 36th sermon on Revelation, through Revelation. And we're going to cover all of Revelation 17 today. So that will just leave 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. Five chapters left. We'll move pretty fast. Some of you laugh. We'll, uh, we'll move pretty quick through those, I believe. But what happens in Revelation 17 and 18 is God is judging Babylon, the system of this world that opposes him. Uh, in Revelation 17, it focuses more on the religious system of the world that has risen, that will arise to oppose God. And in Revelation 18, it focuses more on the political and economic system of this world. And then in Revelation 19, you have the return of Christ as he conquers the beast and the false prophet and establishes his promised kingdom. So we're getting we're getting to the wrap up here. But today, as we walk through Revelation 17, uh, we will see some highly figurative language. Uh, the way that John describes the judgment of Babylon, of this world, it was understood by the first century church as he was referring to Rome. They thought that they were living in the tribulation and that what John was writing about had to do with Rome being judged. And so we could also look at this passage today and see how it relates to world governments and things today, which churches have done throughout the centuries. But I think what's important to understand is that we don't need to get lost in the symbolism and try to relate you know, a country of the world to this power, to this symbol. We need to understand that the symbolism is being used by God to convey a meaning to us, to his church, about how we are to hold fast as we await the return of Jesus Christ. God has given us some choices to make. Will we hold fast or will we not? The book begins with that and the book ends with that. And today's sermon is titled Choices. And we're in Revelation chapter 17. We'll cover the whole chapter, verses 1 through 18. But let's read the first six verses and take care of those first. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me saying, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. With whom the kings of the earth committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. It sounds like something out of a science fiction novel, something crazy. But again, the symbolism is conveying meaning to us. Note in verse 1, it's one of the angels that had the seven bowls that is now speaking to John. We said last week as the seventh bowl was poured out that it was a synopsis, a paraphrase of the events that we see in more detail now and through the rest of the book of Revelation. 
So in some ways, also, Revelation chapter 17 and 18 are an elaboration of chapter 16, verse 19. Chapter 16, verse 19 reads, The great city, Babylon, was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and the great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. Often you'll see in Revelation something is stated, and then the following verses expand on what was paraphrased or stated, or a vision is given, and then a second vision further elaborates. And so what we're seeing in chapters 17 and 18 is an expansion of what was foretold in 1619, and even the seventh bowl as it was poured out, it was a synopsis of what we're seeing in greater detail now. And it is the fall of Babylon. The fall of Babylon was a subject of prophets like Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah. It's a theme in the Old Testament. And it was often said in contrast to Jerusalem, God's city, where the temple was, where David's throne was. And in Revelation, Babylon is the wicked system of this world that is set in contrast to the new Jerusalem that is to come. At the end of verse 1, where it says that she sits on many waters, uh, verse 15 will tell us that this is referring to many peoples, nations, tongues, and multitudes. Verse 2 then makes it clear that the great harlot drew away the kings of the earth. So the great water, she's drawing away these people and bringing them under her influence. Then if you go to verse 3, It gives us more detail about the great harlot. First, it says she's seated on the what? The beast. This means she's in control. She's directing the beast. But second, the beast she sits on is full of what? Blasphemy. So they are against God. They're speaking against God. And then third, the identity of the seven heads and the ten horns that will be discussed later in the chapter. But if you move on to verses 4 and 5, you see that how is she clothed? This is royalty, luxury. luxury. This is apparel that is fine apparel. But while it's nice on the outside, she is nothing more than an abomination. She is the leader of those who are unfaithful to God. She represents unfaithfulness. The name that is written on her forehead mimics those who were sealed by God on their foreheads. Then verse 6 makes her purpose clear. Look at verse 6. She is drunk with the what? The blood of the saints. Let me try to bring this together because that's a lot, right? In a way that makes sense of all this imagery. Babylon was a real kingdom in the Old Testament. Its doom was prophesied in such places as Jeremiah 51, which has a lot of parables, uh, parallels excuse me, with Revelation 17 and 18. We read from Jeremiah 51 earlier in our service. But Babylon, although it was a historical kingdom, it also became a byword. It became a phrase, a name that was known to signify and to identify idolatrous and evil kingdoms or behavior or systems. If a place was called Babylon, it meant that it was wicked, that it was evil, that it was full of idolatry. It became an idiom. 
And so Revelation 17, 18, it says this, it gives us a better understanding of the identity of Babylon here. It says, and the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. And so putting all of this together, what we see is it's unlikely that Revelation 17 is referring to an actual literal woman that will lead these things in this rebellion against God. But it is actually this woman is used going back to the Old Testament times throughout the Old Testament, speaking of idolatry, harlotry, being unfaithful, these abominable acts. This was a way that described when God's people turned from him and worshiped the things of this world. It has a very religious context to it. When God's people played the harlot, when they committed spiritual adultery, it meant that they had forsaken Him and they had worshipped the idols of the nations around them. That's the Old Testament background, the imagery that is being drawn upon in Revelation chapter 17. You put that together with these terms like harlot, fornication, abomination, and how they're set in contrast to the saints who have died. Their blood has been spilt because they believe in Jesus, because they follow Jesus. If you put all that together, many believe there's a great consensus that what this woman represents is a worldwide religious system, basically a worldwide cult that arises that is in opposition to the things of God. So Babylon in its fall is spoken of in Revelation 17 and 18, but chapter 17 becomes clear. It's focusing on this religious nature, this spiritual harlotry, adultery of this system that is against God. And it's led by the beast, the false prophet, and Satan influenced by demons going to war against Jesus. In Revelation 18, we'll see more of the political and economic focus. But again, Revelation 17 is this worldwide system, this great harlot, this spiritual adultery. This false religion that is opposing God. Did you know that we see the groundwork for this in our world today? There is a push right now to abandon the truth, even to the extent to say there are some countries that are pushing. And depending on how elections would have gone years ago, there was a political party that was threatening to do this in our country. To push to say that. Proclaiming the truth of God on subjects such as homosexuality could be labeled as hate speech and illegal. There are places in the world today that want to censor the pulpit and determine what pastors can and cannot preach from God's word, which is the truth. And so what we find is this attack on biblical authority is laying the groundwork for a world religion that will be devoid of God. It will be a man-made religion influenced by demons. And I believe that this worldwide religion will be a religion that's not based on truth, but it kind of takes aspects of many different religions. And it's going to be so broad that anyone can follow it. No one will be offended by it because it's devoid of truth. There's nothing to offend because it's just a conglomeration of everything. 
And as this worldwide cult religion rises, its goal, demonically influenced, is to oppose the people of God, to make themselves drunk on the blood of the saints. That, that means that when we declare the truth of God, we will be the enemy to this world religion. The Apostle Paul warned Timothy about this in 2 Timothy 4. You can turn there if you want. I want you to see this verse. Understand this. Paul warned Timothy about this. But for the time, verse 3, chapter 4, verse 3, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. People don't want to hear truth. But according to their own desires, that's their God, their own desires. We talked about this some few weeks ago when people make their own feelings their God. Because they have itching ears. They just want to hear something good. They will heap up for themselves teachers. They'll make teachers that tell them what they want to hear. And they will turn their ears away from the what? Truth. And be turned aside to fables. Paul told Timothy, look, there's going to come a time they're going to turn away from the truth. They're going to put teachers in place that tell them that they want to hear, that make them feel good, and it will be devoid of the truth. In fact, it will be against the truth of God. It will be heresy. It will be demonic at its core. But you know what? The truth of God demands a verdict. When we are confronted with the Word of God, we must either surrender to it or we rebel against it. We must either tell God, yes, this is your truth, therefore your will be done, or we reject it and say, no, I am going my way. What will happen and what will, well, it's already happening, is people will no longer value the truth. Objective truth. God's truth but they'll want a religion that tells them what they want to hear. What's sad about that is they would rather be lied to and coddled into a false sense of security than they would encounter the Word of God and be eternally changed. That's the direction the world is headed. That brings us to our first point today. You are and will be faced with the decision to either accept God's Word as it is and be changed, or you'll accept a lie that soothes your ego on your way to destruction. You will either accept the Word of God as it is, truth be broken upon God's Word and renewed upon it and receive the life that God has, Oh, you will reject it hearing what just makes you feel better about yourself, even though that path is the path to destruction. It sounds harsh, but is that not what's happening in this passage? Is that not the Word of God? The great harlot and those who follow her are set in contrast to those who remain faithful to Jesus even unto death. Whether we admit it or not, we're faced with this choice already every day of our lives. Will we live in the light of God's revelation of Himself, or will we reject it? Let me help you apply that. This week in your business dealings, will you live in the light of God's Word with integrity and character, or will you go by the way of the world? In your home, will you value the things of the world and, and lead your family in the ways of the world? Or will your family reflect the glory of God? 
and the things that you watch and listen to? Are you making choices that are based on God's truth and holiness and what He wants for your life? Or are you just following self and your own desires? Are they what's God? Listen, don't you hear this? You are responsible for the choices you make. And what will you do with the truth that God has revealed to you? One thing I can promise you is that by God's grace, by God's grace, FBC Liberty City will continue to stand as a beacon of truth. I will not preach. I will not preach a watered-down gospel. I will not preach a man-made religion. I will declare, thus says the Lord, God is still holy. Hell is still hot. Jesus is the only way of salvation. And if I preach anything different, you better run me out of town. Amen? Let's move on to the rest of our passage today. Revelation 17, verses 7 and 8. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast which you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Alright, so now this angel helps us to get an understanding of this vision a little bit more, right? Remember, Satan wants to do everything he can to mimic, to have a counterfeit for the things of God. And look how the beast is described in verse 8. It says he was and is not and will ascend. Does that sound familiar to you? One of the titles of God through the book of Revelation is He is the one who was and is and will be. So apparently it will look like the beast has been slain and will rise again. It will be a false miracle, a a satanic counterfeit to deceive the world. Now if you remember, uh, this beast in Revelation 17 is most likely the Antichrist that we saw in Revelation 13, the beast from the sea. He was given by power by Satan. He was allowed to make war against the saints. And he was apparently mortally wounded. So understanding that, let's continue on with verse 9. Revelation 17, verses 9, 10, 11 explain the seven heads. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are the seven mountains on which the woman, woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other is not yet. When he comes, he must continue a short time. The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth and is one of the seven and is going to perdition. So in regards, first of all, to the seven mountains in verse 9, Rome was built on a mountain range on seven mountains. And this is to be, especially the early church, they read that and I thought, man, that's talking about Rome. And some people take that very literally to think that Rome is going to return. But I think it's more symbolic. It is that there is a kingdom that will arise and it will be in the spirit and power of ancient Rome. It will oppose God and try to exalt its glory over the glory of God. The identity of the seven kings have been debated throughout history. People 
from the first, second century, tried to label those as, oh, it was this king and this king and this king. But what we know is that the beast that will arise is the eighth, and he's the leader of those who lead this final assault against God. Again, I don't think we should get lost in trying to place which each of these kingdoms are. We must understand that there will be a powerful alliance of world nations, of kingdoms. And what's being pointed here is that this Antichrist figure will be at the head. It's explained a little bit further in our passage today. Look at verses 12 and 13. The ten horns, which you saw, are ten kings who have received no kingdom as of yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. This is the beast from the sea, the Antichrist. They are of one mind. They will give their power and authority to the beast. Remember, there was a beast from the land, a beast from the sea. The beast from the sea is the Antichrist, just in case you're confused. And so as the Antichrist pulls together the world alliance against God, he's going to empower ten kings as generals. But the power they receive is only a power to serve him, the Antichrist, and his rebellion against God. So look at verse 14. These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. I love how just brief this verse is. After all that they've done to oppose Him, look, they will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. Just simple. For He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, and those who are with Him are called, chosen, and faithful. That brief verse describes the victory that is the return of Jesus. And we're going to see it displayed more. We're going to see it played out more in Revelation 19. But notice one thing. There's no real battle. Jesus shows up. And by His authority as the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, the battle is won as soon as He steps on the field. There's no real struggle. It's just as He shows up, He wins. And we triumph with Him. But notice how the saints that triumph with them are described. They're called, they're called, they are chosen, they're faithful. Again, this is in contrast to the great harlot who is an abomination, who is spiritually an adulterer. Let's read the remainder of our passage today, verses 15 through 18. Then he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues, and the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire. Again, this is like a PG-13 passage today. For God has put into their hearts to fulfill His purpose, to be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman whom you saw is that great city. Again, this is why I think it's figurative. Is that great city which reigns over the kingdoms of the earth. So this verse describes the forces of evil. What happens is they turn on each other. As they are unable to conquer Jesus, Jesus returns and He's victorious. He is the rightful King. And so these forces of evil that had banded together when they can't overthrow Jesus, they end up turning on one another. So it's going to be a time of just complete chaos in the end. It will be the defeat of this false Religion that has exalted itself against the knowledge of God and in the presence of Jesus, it will simply collapse in and self-implode. It can't hold up under its own weight. You know why? 
because it's false. You know it remains the truth of God. And that brings us to our second and final point today. When we choose the things of this world over the things of God, we receive the consequences of living for the world. Why am I making this point about choices? Because right now, and I talked about it a few weeks ago, we live in a world that wants to exalt our feelings and emotions over truth. But we also live in a world that wants to live devoid of the consequences of their actions. The world is trying to teach you that you should be able to live however you want to, and if you suffer consequences you don't like, then that's not fair. It's mean. My friends, that's insanity. That is foolishness. If you carry that to its natural conclusion, then I should be able to take a ball ping hammer, put my finger here, smash it, and get mad at you for letting my finger get hurt. That, that is the rationale of the world right now. That is what they're putting forth. We live in a world that thinks they can do anything they want and should not have to suffer the consequences. And I'm afraid that some of that's creeping into the church. We want to reject God's word about sexual purity and then think that we don't have to suffer any consequences when we do. We worship our jobs, we worship our desires, we worship the things of the world, and then we think it's unfair when we suffer the consequences of our choices. We think we should be able to spend money we don't have and then just simply have our loans and our debts forgiven, even though we were the ones that made those choices. We think we can leave God's word sitting on our nightstand, barely ever read it, and then think God owes us the wisdom we need in the decisions that we make this day. We never share Jesus with our friends and neighbors. And we wonder why we don't experience the abundant life. We hold on to anger and unforgiveness and wonder why we're anxious and fearful. It's because when we choose the things of the world, we get with that the consequences of that choice. We must understand that our actions or our lack of actions have consequences. That's reality. When you choose the things of God, guess whose results you get? God's. When you choose the world, you get the world's results. But you're responsible for the choice you make. Katie and I have seen this in our giving. We felt like God was convicting us to give a little bit more as we've gone along in our Christian life that a tithing should just be the beginning of generosity. We've added more and more to our percentage each year, even as our family has grown and our expenses have grown. But it was a step of faith that God called us to make. And really, based on where we're at with the generosity we believe God's called us to live with, we really can't make it. But you know what God does? He provides in ways that are beyond the paycheck. Because He's good. And when you obey God and you do what God calls you to do, then you get God's results. And God provides vacations for my family to get away that we wouldn't normally be able to afford. And, and God provides even places for me to hunt and things to do to unwind that I normally couldn't afford. And God provides and you get God's revo- results when you're obedient to Him. 
You see, the mistake that we make is that we have to be in control of all and know how it's all going to work out before we take that step. But that's contrary to the life of faith. The life of faith says, God, I'm going to be obedient to you and I'm going to trust the results into your hands. Revelation 17 depicts a system of this world that's in rebellion against God. The end of the world system <laughs> is that it's conquered by Jesus and simply implodes upon itself. It falls under its own weight. And the world wants to live independent from God and it wants to convince you that living independent from God is what's best for you. But Augustine said it this way. He said, a man's greatest misery is to be without God. That is to have no inward connection to the one who is life and existence itself. Do you see what I'm getting at? The, the world seeks to free itself from God, thinking there'll be no consequences. But in doing so, the consequence is the world puts itself in its own hell. And in our lives, I think we often believe the lie that life is best when we're free from the restraints of a life devoted and surrendered to God. But in reality, it's the life surrendered to God that is the most free. So to bring the day to a close, I want to remind you of the two primary things we discussed. First, you are faced each day with the choice to either receive or reject the truth of God. Every day we're faced with that. God's revealed Himself to His Word, so the question becomes, what are we going to do with that? And second, the choices that you make, whether it is a choice of inaction or action, Sometimes the choice you make is to fail to act. And these choices that we make come with consequences. And the life that chooses the things of God receives the things of God. And the life lived for the world receives, guess what? The world. You're responsible for the choices you make. And both choices lie before us and both choices have an end. One ends in everlasting life and the other ends in separation from God. But I thank God that through Jesus Christ we can know Him and be known by Him. Now I want to close with a, a story about uh, what's called the greatest generation. Generation from World War II. Because I, again, I think along with these choices is there is a misconception in this world that if something is hard, it's bad. And I've seen a generation that's coming up that is being sold this belief that the easy path is the right path. The easy path is the right path. That's a lie that's being peddled right now. If you think back to World War II, nations that were at war, Katie's grandfather went to war. He was a machine gunner in a bomber airplane. Through many missions, some missions he would get out of the plane and as they were walking away, they would look back and they could see what was on the other side of the plane. Their own plane was so shot full of holes they could see through it like Swiss cheese. Why did we send soldiers to fight and to die? To do the hard thing? Is war a good thing? No. But there was a man named Hitler and there was an evil on the rise in the world and there were people being slaughtered by the thousands and tens of thousands. 
And there was nothing easy about standing up to evil. But that was the calling of the men of that day. And the women of that day and the families of that day and the calling of the world was to stand up against that evil. And it was hard. And people lost their lives standing up to that evil. And when they came home from fighting that war, when Katie's grandfather came home from fighting that war, did he go, okay, now everything should just be handed to me and be easy now. I've done the hard part. Now everybody roll out the red carpet and take care of me the rest of my life. No! He got a piece of land that was filled with rocks and it was junk. And he worked that land. And he removed the rocks. And he tilled that land and he put in ponds for his cattle to feed. And he worked hard and he raised a family and he taught his family to work hard. He ended up having some of the best land in that city because he worked it. And all of the things that he did and the investments that he made, the things that were hard, like going to war, like working land, like raising for boys and living for Jesus, the things that were hard, guess what they yielded? They yielded the best results. They yielded God's results. We live in a world that wants to sell you on if it's hard, it's bad. Take the easy road, do what you feel like, and only listen to what makes you feel good. And that is, listen, that is the beginning of this world system that will exalt itself against God. Against the truth of God's Word. And so as believers, we have the choice to make. Well, I stand on the Word of God. Even at times doing the hard things, the sacrificial things. Because by faith, I believe that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek after Him. This world is not my end. I have a home that my Master has prepared for me. Would you please stand with me? Do you know why we can do the hard things? you know why we can endure for the end, till the end? you know why we do have this hope? It's because of Jesus who has already gone before us. Who did not stay in heaven removed from us in our sin, but He left heaven, came to this world, took on the flesh of man yet without sin, walked among us, lived among us, understood what it was to struggle, to be weary, to be tired, to be tempted yet without sin. Then He went to a cross. And on the cross, He took my sin. He took my darkness. All the times that I've doubted God, that I've not trusted God, all the times that I've chosen the world, Jesus took the penalty for that upon Himself on the cross. And He died in my place for my sin. Not that I could be better than anyone, but that I might be saved from myself. And when I see Jesus on the cross dying for me... At one point, it humbles me, realizing that I'm so sinful, it took nothing else than the death of God to save me. But it also exalts me to say, God loved me this much. The cross humbles us and builds us up at the same time. Today, if you've never put your faith in Christ, that's where you need to begin. The life that God has called you to live is impossible apart from Jesus Christ. But God has given us His Son, and He has given us the promise that whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. 
It's as if you've never put your faith in Christ. I encourage you, I plead with you to turn from your way. That's repentance. To turn from your way. To look to Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. To cast yourself upon Him. And to be saved. Maybe some of us realize we kind of have been slipping into the way of the world and it's doctrine of the easy way. Maybe it's time for us to come back to open our Bibles to getting God's Word, to know the truth, and to stand on the truth. I'm going to pray as God's Spirit leads, you come. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you that you are faithful, that you are the God who was and is and is to come. Our past, present, and future is in your hands, and this moment you are near. Have your way. May you receive the glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.